Hey world, thanks for pressing play. We are about to dive into the first episode of Abby Eats St. Louis. This is not a restaurant review show, okay? Though I do hope you learn about some new cool places to try. And this isn't just for food snobs. Really, it's okay. I don't always understand the menu descriptions either. Instead, this is supposed to be a conversation, a way to expand our palates by discussing what's on the plate as well as the interesting stories behind it all. We have a pretty cool food scene around here and I cannot wait to explore it with you guys. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to leave a review as well. Thanks for grabbing a seat at the table. Enjoy. To get a taste of flyover country, a spot near the airport is probably a good place to start. We are here right at the border of Kinloch in Ferguson and the airport is just beyond that and so it's kind of weird to be out on a farm and hear constant plane noise but that's pretty common. We're at Earth Dance Farm in North St. Louis County. They've been doing organic since long before it was the thing to do. Yes. This farm was established in 1883. It's been farmed on for over 130 years. We're pretty sure it's the oldest organic farm west of the Mississippi. And today, they send the stuff they grow here to the hottest restaurants in town. They're one of dozens of local farms feeding you whether you know it or not. I'm Abby Larico, and today on Abby Eats St. Louis, we're sticking to our roots, literally, as in the ones in the ground. You could say it's a fan, except it's been going for easily 20 years. So if it is, it's a long-lived We're fan. talking about the farm-to-table locavore movement, learning how it's reshaping our food culture. It's like, what do you want to support? Every time you pick up your fork, you're making a choice. Every time you eat something, you're making a choice on what you want to support and what you want to see in our food system. Meeting one of the most important players in the game who actually isn't even a chef or a farmer. I get the, the obligatory beard, um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I don't do any farming myself. I'm a, a very avid eater, I would say. And explaining why one of the biggest chefs in town might be a good guy to hire to pick your weeds. Pretty much anyone who has a, a yard has edible food in their backyard. from having it seeded to germinating or transplanting, whichever method you're using, and you know, kind of coddling it as it grows and making sure that you give it the right environment to thrive. I wore a straw hat to this interview. I'm kind of kitschy like that. So my name is Kat. I'm the Farm Systems Coordinator here at Earth Dance Organic Farm School. Kat has pink streaks in her hair and a nose ring. She makes farming look cool. Well, so do a lot of the other folks working in the fields, the gardens, and greenhouses there. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting little niche out here. But yeah. it's not as niche as it used to be. Many of the people out here live in their neighborhoods in the city or the burbs, but they head to the farm to volunteer, learning the art and science of growing. Restaurants open to try to be organic. People spend a lot of money to try to live organically. Yes. How's that changed what you guys are doing here? So... We really try to teach about what organic is and not what it isn't. So a lot of people, you know, when you think of organic, you think 
non-GMOs, no pesticides, no chemicals, all that. But really when you look at organic, you want to look at the entire system and what it is. A kind of vague example would be, say you have a crop that has all this pest pressure. If you, say, put in some stakes next to it to invite birds to eat the pests, you're looking at the whole system and you're working with that system. Or planting all different types of biodiverse plantings around your crop to invite beneficial insects that will eat the pests. That's part of what organic is. It's not what it isn't. It's all the things that go into it that create these healthy ecosystems, this healthier food. Looking around the farm the day we visited, it was just so cute to see all the folks. Here. What is this? This is a lettuce. It's butternut lettuce. Ooh, looking happy, getting their hands dirty. You can hear here, though, it gets a little windy. A lot of times if you think of big ag, you think of tractors and big equipment out on the field, which, of course, can compact your soil. Healthy soil is very much alive. It's a living organism made up of billions of relationships between fungi, bacteria, and insects. So if you think of it like scaffolding, you add layer on layer, you're building it up, making it stronger. If you knock it all down, it has to start all over again. So essentially, every time you carve deep into your soil and kill those relationships, you're depleting the health of your soil. So here we ra uh, really try to use uh, methods that will add nutrients to the soil, will make it as healthy as possible and keep building up those layers. And for and some people, really it's building business. Ooh, I like that. Restaurants can charge big bucks for a well-prepped veggie with dirt just freshly brushed off, but we're not there yet. Instead, we're here at Eat Here St. Louis. There's, I think there's a lot of descriptions. So some people call it like a food hub is what people would call it. Um, a food aggregator is a new word. Um, but what essentially what we do is we pull in supply from uh, various farms. Whatever you call it, Preston Walker is the boss of it. We're the ones that are kind of the go-between for the farm to the restaurant. We do make the deliveries. We I say market, but you know, we just basically make people aware of what we have. We interviewed him in his office, a small room in a relatively small warehouse in South City. Just outside his doors, workers were prepping shipments for restaurants all over the area. Most of the orders come in through email or text, um, and they're going off of my produce list that I send out you know, a couple times a week. So they, they send me a list of, hey, I want 10 pounds of uh, wild ramps, 5 pounds of asparagus, 10 pounds of ground lamb or something like that so so I create these packing lists that has you know the order what every restaurant needs and then um, it's, it's a little spreadsheet right there and I hand that over to the the packers who um, you know put everything in you know brown paper bags and boxes and you know, put all that together think of a big name restaurant maybe the last place your trendy co-worker posted about on Instagram well, it's probably written on the side of one of those stacks of boxes. We'll use Ian Frode's top 100 list, uh, but uh, I would say the majority of the top 50 restaurants in St. Louis are doing some level of sourcing from either us or local farms, for sure. While we were there, a couple farmers shuffled in and out with their deliveries. It was kind of cool to see. I think last year we worked with um, like 135 farms. So we pull in, uh, you know, just using an example, say spinach. We may pull spinach from three or four different farms, so we have a larger supply here. So that can accommodate you know, multiple restaurants at a time. I had no idea there was a middleman in this whole farm-to-table deal. He's like the human dashes in the phrase farm-to-table. 
or maybe he's the word too. That's probably it, because this is the guy who can really bring it. It gives farmers access to a market they may not have access to. So when you think about if a farm, say they only grow asparagus, right? A restaurant is probably going to be leery of just, you know, having one whole separate vendor come in and just provide asparagus, right? So with us, you can buy from multiple farms, multiple products, pretty much anything you would need produce-wise. And just kind of smooths out the ordering process for the restaurant. And a lot of farmers, this is a role that they don't want. You know, they don't want to deliver. They don't want to market. So that's where we, we fit in there. For sure. Interesting. It's kind of like I think about like in Europe and how they used to have a bakery and a butcher shop and all sorts of other places. It's almost like you're the grocery store sure. for those different farms. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're the... Uh, yeah, we're the end market for a lot of farms, and it allows them, you know, farmers typically have the farmer's market, and then they have, maybe if they're big enough, they have the wholesale, like, produce row option, but what we, um, you know, we give them the opportunity, instead of sitting in a farmer's market for six hours on a Saturday, they bring everything they have here, and it's, you know, they're done. They get their check, you know, they are, um, they're not wasting a Saturday when they could be out, you know, harvesting or growing or planting or being with their family or, you know, whatever. Several different kinds of rice, uh, local flour, local eggs. Making farmers' lives easier takes him to some pretty interesting places. The morning we talked, he had met a farmer in a parking lot before the sun came up to pick up some produce. I meet this farmer who, they, they do uh, asparagus, peaches, and then some onions for us. And I meet them at the ferry. Well, in the spring, it floods. So right now, two of the ferry options are closed. So I have to drive up to Winfield, Missouri, because that's the closest ferry that's open in the flood. So I drive up to Winfield and just wait for the ferry, and then they come across on their truck, and then I get the asparagus, and I bring it back. Quick update here, and a good example of how precarious farming can really be. So when we talked to Preston about that farm and making that trip to Winfield, that was before the really bad flooding that area saw the first weekend of May. And at the time of recording this podcast, Preston said even they are cut off completely. He says now their only option is to drive all the way down to Hannibal, which is about a five-hour trip for them. So just giving you some background on how my life used to be is I worked remotely. My office was in Scottsdale, and, you know, nine hours of every day I was on a teleconference. And um, um, there was very little interaction with people in the real world, like when you think about it. So I would go to go and get coffee in the morning, and that was my interaction for the day, to be honest. I would sit on the phone for, you know, eight to ten hours. And then today, or, you know, um, here, you know, I'm talking to chefs, I'm talking to farmers, I'm, you know, it's, I'm, I'm like more part of the world, you know. It's not just a solid investment in his people skills. Like he said, business is good, and he thinks the future looks good, too. And that's because of the past. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of a throwback to probably how things were in probably like the 1930s, you know. Um, that was kind of prior to the consolidation of the food industry itself. So, um, yeah, I think this is this movement is, I think, it kind of at the beginning, honestly. Um, yeah, everybody, every restaurant seems to be somewhat focused on, you know, the quality of their ingredients and then the backstory of where things come from. I think that's... That's a big, a big thing, for sure. So big, it's more than a backstory for famed chef Rob Connolly. Now it's starting to smell good. It's the whole story, spelled out on the menu of his newest restaurant, Bullrush. He opened it up in March in Grand Center. 
every single ingredient is something you can find right here in St. Louis. Just walking from that room into here, it was like a flavor wall. It smells so good. To me, it has to do with um, quality of ingredients that I can trust. And trust is the big word there because how many times do we have to see a story about olive oil that was cut um, to make it more affordable or cheaper with canola oil? or maple syrup that's not maple syrup, but it's actually corn syrup with maple flavoring. We see these things time and time again. And so for me, it's about getting my own food and making it myself so I know exactly what I'm putting into my body and more importantly, the, the bodies of my family and friends. Rob's from Bridgeton originally. He pulled that classic St. Louis move you know, leaving town, doing some great stuff, earning accolades and awards, and then coming back, because they always come back. He set up Squatter's Cafe, and now Bull Rush. You can impress your friends, by the way, by telling them that's actually the fancier name for a cattail plant, the name of the restaurant, Bull Rush. And then finally the rutabaga. Anyway, Rob made a name for himself around the country by focusing on local ingredients, quite literally, foraging for them. Well, forage just means you gather ingredients from the woods, and it's nothing as exotic or crazy as it, it might sound. I mean, people already do it. They can go into their garden, and anyone who gardens probably has purslane. Purslane's a weed that's not only edible, but it's delicious. And so what we do is we focus on those plants that, uh, that we can find out in nature and uh, bring them back into the kitchen and give them a different treatment that might make them special. So weeds, like you could literally go out there and eat weeds from someone's backyard? Backyard, from the, the woods. Um, we gather all of ours from private land just because we're doing it for commercial purposes. Um, but yeah, pretty much anyone who has a, a yard has edible food in their backyard. You know, the, the most basic one, which is tasty, is dandelion. And we all have it. And the flower and the the root and the leaves are all edible in different ways. The leaves, you can just make a salad um, or wilt them like you might with uh, collard greens or something. Um, but yeah, every single person who has a yard has food in their yard, whether they know it or not. Do people ever tease you when you're walking down the sidewalk and see like a dandelion growing through the crack? All the time. <laughs> so the two things I get is people saying, Oh, I, my dumpster, there's some really good food in the dumpster. Come on, that's not foraging. Um, the other is when I'm in the grocery store and someone recognizes me, they'll talk to me and you can watch as their eyes look down into my basket. Like, yes, I have Totinos just like you do, okay? Oh, that's good. <laughs> okay, actually, I don't have Totinos, but, but the idea is true. I, my guilty pleasure is something like Pop-Tarts. You know, what's your Pop-Tart flavor? Oh, brown sugar cinnamon. There you go. There are See, no others. At least you're going with the classic. Yeah, no, no, there are no others. Those other ones are all fancy whatevers. <laughs> Forget those. For being a fresh food kind of guy, you're not likely to find him in that section of the grocery store. So, for example, yesterday I went out and I gathered what's called bluebell. Bluebell is a leaf that tastes like an oyster. A lot of people around here call it oyster leaf. And it can be eaten raw or it can be uh, sauteed and cooked down. Um, when I gathered those, even by the time I got back to the kitchen, they had started to wilt. Now, if I get something at the grocery store, think about how long that product has gone from the farm to the grocery. It went from a farm to a distributor to a warehouse to a food, some truck that distributes it, and then ultimately to the grocery, and then to your kitchen. 
what have they done to that food to allow it to survive that much time? I mean, sometimes it's chemicals, sometimes it's um, picking it before it's ripe, sometimes it's the, um, the hybridizing of vegetables to create stronger genetics. Um, all those things are important in food systems, but when we look at quality and nutrition and just the wholesomeness of food, there's nothing better than picking it yourself and eating it right away. You will see the whole process go down at Bullrush. The kitchen is in the middle of the room, so you can see how the cooks prepare ingredients that you might never have heard of or would never have thought to put together. Uh, a dish we're serving right now is uh, roasted root vegetables, and, and we're about to transition to spring vegetables, that has a foraged green pesto that we put in with it, caramelized onions, and we do serve it on a German pancake that uses some corn flour. Our dessert right now, um, we're doing a persimmon vinegar pot. Bonita dashi, it's a seafood flavored broth. What we do is take all of our food scrap and make a vegetable broth from the food scrap and use that as the liquid to go in with the egg to make this egg custard. So it's kind of like a savory flan, if you know flan. So when we opened, we were smack dab in rutabaga season. Now, if you were to ask all of your audience how many of you love rutabagas? Probably not one hand would go up, right? <laughs> so it's a matter of understanding how to cook these ingredients to make them the stars. But we take that star then and build on it. My favorite is the fermented persimmon donut, which is a savory course, not a sweet course. I feel like it's like you took a grab bag of food words and pulled them out <laughs> and just came up with different things. <laughs> because some of it seems so wild, but yet at the same time, I'm hungry. I tell my team every day, get the salt right, get the sugar right, and it'll be perfect. Anything else we can figure out. But if you mess up the salt or mess up the sugar, it's no good. Um, so yes, these things may not make any sense together, <laughs> but, but they actually make complete sense together. To eat like this, um, to kind of do what you do here, there's a lot of intentionality behind it, a lot of thoughtfulness into every part of the process. Um, tell me a little bit about how you come up with a menu, for example, or a new item on it. Yeah, for, for me, I, I think a lot about how people don't know how to cook anymore. I mean, we're in the age of Postmates and ordering out and eating out. And of course, I love people eating out. Uh, but on a daily basis, you need to cook at home. And so how often do we get packaged food, processed food, um, and just reheat things or combine things? Uh, uh, my mom um, has gotten to a point where she's by herself. She buys frozen vegetables from Trader Joe's and a frozen sauce from Trader Joe's, heats them up, tosses them together, and has a meal. And, and she's happy with that. Um, would she be happier if she had a freshly prepared meal that has fresh vegetables and fresh fruits? Uh, you know, I, I would like to think she would. Um, it is a very intentional thing. I've lived my life like this for as long as I can remember, and not for any particular reason other than I like fresh food. We've started creating food this way for a reason because we have a huge population to feed. Um, it doesn't seem like foraging or entirely relying on local foods could sustain the entire population or do you disagree with that? 
Well, I, I think it could, but we would immediately have to change how we run things, how we run the universe. For example, I've sat in meetings here in town and they'll say, well, what are, what's everyone's goals around food systems or food security is another phrase we hear. And I have the same answer every time. Every time the city plants a tree, maybe one's been blown down or they're planting a new tree, why should that not be a fruit tree? There's no reason not to do that. Now, the horticulturalist may talk about the shedding of the leaves or the, the fruit ending up on the sidewalk and safety issues. I'm aware of those issues, uh, but I think they are secondary to the concept of food for the people, free food that costs us nothing. You put a sapling in that maybe it cost a dollar or two, or maybe it was free, and let it grow and let time do its work, and then there's, there's free food. And, and there are communities all over the world that um, already do this. And it's not, this isn't a, uh, a special thing or a new idea. It's an old idea, right? I mean, you have a farm and you're gonna plant fruit trees on the perimeter because you're not farming the perimeter, you're farming the inside, but you wanna maximize the space. And so your question is whether we could do that in a, in a community like this. And um, I don't know, what I do know is it would take a commitment, and it's a philosophic commitment, that would have to go um, all the way from the top down to the bottom to make it happen. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work. Because the second the mayor says, we want fruit trees, it takes the street department, it takes the gardening nursery department, it takes, you know, maybe it's the postal carriers, um, to all everyone involved who it would interact with that food to be able to communicate that to the public. And wouldn't it be terrible if they put a tree and then I, as a restaurant owner, came and just took it on and served in my restaurant? So, you know, there are bigger discussions that have to happen, but at its base, yeah, I do think we could feed a whole community locally. If you had to draw a line around the city and only eat things that were grown in St. Louis County, for example, or accessible in St. Louis County, what kind of food scene would that be? Well, for me, I, we know so many farmers at this point, and um, I hope people are going to the farmers markets and not just buying um, a few things, but hitting all the different booths because they all have something a little unique. Even when you're going through in tomato season, it's like, oh my goodness, more tomatoes. There's a lot of different varieties of tomatoes that people are growing because all those farmers are excited about what they're doing. And they love to share that information and share their ingredients. And sharing, he says, is critical, especially in this town with its growing foodie culture. All, it's either all of us make it or none of us make it because I can only buy so much from, let's say, Earth Dance Farms before they run out. But I still want to continue something on my menu because I know it's seasonal. So then I might go to such and such farms or any of the other farms. We work with a lot of farms. And, and so um, I need them all to be successful. And they look at the restaurants with the same lens. We need these customers, so we need them to be successful. So yeah, it, unlike other cities, we're not, uh, we don't try to hide who we buy from. We tell other restaurants, this is where we get our stuff. And every now and then there'll be something that tests my, my resolve on that. Uh, for example, it took me a long time to find sorghum for the new restaurant because so often sorghum is cut with corn syrup. 
and to find someone who was growing it and I knew it was pure, meaning they would let me visit the farm and see the operations and, and taste it. Um, immediately, I, when I came back from that research trip, someone said, who's the farmer? And I, I had that brief pause where I'm like, I don't want to give up that information because it took me so long and he was so tight with his sorghum. He didn't even want to give it to me and then he finally did. And But then I told and it, it was to the Midwestern and Ben Welch. Ben had been doing similar research. And I said, now, Ben, you're a bigger operation than me. Don't take all that sorghum. <laughs> uh, but this is where I get it from. There, there's a lot that goes into these things. But we all know that we all have to make it. Because if not, then all you have is big ag, processed foods, and mega resellers. And I just don't have an interest in those because the flavors aren't as good. Okay, so flavors aren't as good. If that's not enough to convince you to spend a little extra, work a little harder, maybe even pick the dandelion off the sidewalk and throw it on a salad. Look, I get it, but everyone I talked to for this topic gave me even more reasons to go locavore. Start making those little commitments and you, you'll see that your body will change in a way that processed food is just disgusting to you. I love my packaged cookies and potato chips, but I, I taste chemicals. That's what I taste at this point. Um, because at home, we never use it. In the restaurant, we never use it. We don't even have a can opener in this restaurant. And you can taste the difference. The other side is kind of the economic impact of buying local. And that's where, you know, you're, you're taking that money that you would have spent with some international company and you're diverting that to somebody like me or directly to a farm and you know that that money stays in the community and it's definitely a bigger impact for sure. Kat, the cool farmer from Earth Dance, describes it a little more personally. Emotional and so touching. One of my favorite stories I have here is I did wholesale deliveries this past season so I would take the product that we'd harvest to our customers and I was delivering to City Greens and they were putting out the things as I was delivering them and they were putting out these little pints of cherry tomatoes and I was in there in the corner waiting for them to uh, finish up and I saw this little like three or four year old boy go up to the pints of cherry tomatoes that the guy had just put out and pick one up and looked at it and he like looked at his grandma and he's like can we buy these and she was like sure and he's just so excited and I'm just like crying in the corner because it was the most sweetest thing and it's like wow I you know help make that happen. And who doesn't want to see St. Louis get a little sweeter? Ooh la la. Ooh la la. Ooh la la. Abby Eats St. Louis is a Five on Your Side production. I'm your host, Abby Larico. Executive producer is Dory Olmos. Technical support thanks so, so, so much to Cassidy Thomas and Aaron Ritchie helping make this whole thing happen. Our theme music is by Olivier Renoir, Jerome Fabi, and Pierre Dubost. Three guys with cool songs and pretty cool names. And special thanks to Katie Caro of Jasper Paul. We will be back in your feed on Friday with a quick bite. That's just a short episode dishing on what's happening in St. Louis food this weekend. Till then, St. Louis, seize the plate.